Hello team and welcome to episode 352 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Susan Pierce Thompson. Susan is a neuroscientist, a New York Times bestselling author and founder and CEO of Bright Line Eating. Susan Starts Life wasn't easy by any means at all. Her exposure to drugs started at just 14 years old and led her down the path of drug abuse and prostitution. After a moment of enlightenment, Susan unbelievably turned her life around and has found herself sober ever since. Unfortunately, she did find herself with another addiction a little bit later down the line, which was a food addiction. She has courageously put an end to this addiction, which she stated was even harder than the drug addiction, and has committed herself to helping others do the same. As you can imagine, this conversation was a very interesting one. In this episode, you can expect to learn how Susan overcame her drug addiction from one day to another, why food addiction is one of, if not the hardest addiction to face, along with what steps we can take to move towards a healthier relationship with food and breaking away from food addiction. So without further ado, Susan Thompson. Susan Pierce Thompson, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great, Elliot. Glad to be here. How are you? I am super well. Thank you for asking. And I'm excited to have you here. Before we dive in today, I want to give a little bit of context to the listeners who may have not come across yourself before. So can you give us a bit of background on who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. So I am a brain scientist. Uh, my PhD is in brain and cognitive sciences, and I teach people how their brain blocks them from losing weight. So I especially work with people who experience uh, cravings with food and food obsession. Sometimes when they start to eat, they lose control over how much they eat. Um, the people I work with typically have a weight struggle, sometimes a lifelong weight struggle, um, or they might be, you know, in a right-sized body, but you know, battling with their weight in their mind and obsessed over what they've eaten or not eaten, how many miles, how many calories, how many pounds, whether they're on their plan or off their plan. And I help people to break free from all of that. And, you know, the way I came to do that work goes way back into my history, but that's essentially what I do. Amazing. And I'd love to go back into your history. So where did the journey all begin for you? You know, it all began for me with a mushroom trip when I was 14 years old. <laughs> and I'm serious about that. Um, what happened for me is I started using drugs as a teenager and I already had a bit of a weight problem at that time. I wasn't a fat kid, but I was chunky. And, uh, you know, by the time I was 11 years old, I weighed more than I weigh now as an adult. And you know, when I was 14, I started doing drugs to manage my weight, to have fun, to meet boys, to explore the world. And, you know, mushrooms are an amazing psychedelic experience. But uh, thanks to our language that just has this one word drugs, I just said, oh, drugs aren't bad. They're good. And I just committed to doing them all the time. So unfortunately, the psychedelics progressed to speed, uh, to cocaine, to crack cocaine. And I dropped out of high school and by the time I was 19 years old, I was a prostitute and smoking crack all the time. I had a moment of clarity just a few days after my 20th birthday and got clean and sober uh, due to a series of miracles that unfolded in my life, which basically was a guy that I'd met at a gas station at three in the morning, took me to a 12-step meeting for drug and alcohol recovery on our first date. And oh, wow. I got I got a 24-hour coin and I haven't had a drink or a drug 
ever since I started working a program. I started working the steps. And so my drug and alcohol addiction really got handled pretty, I mean, it wasn't easy. You know, I had cravings on and off for a long time. I had to work my program really hard, but once I stopped using drugs and alcohol, I never went back to them. So I've been clean now for 28 years. Congratulations. Thank you. And super grateful for that miracle. Super grateful. Uh, but my addiction just jumped right over to food and I got fat really fast. I knew that I would. I knew that as soon as I stopped smoking crack, I would pile on the weight and I did. And by my mid twenties, I was clinically obese, living with clinical obesity. And I did try 12 step approaches for food and there's many 12 step food programs and I went to lots of meetings and what I realized at that through those years as my weight was climbing, but I was trying to address my food addiction is it's not always clear what the first drink is when your addiction is food. You know, when you're an alcoholic, you can stop drinking alcohol. And as a matter of fact, processed foods are the only substance addiction that you can't just stop using the substance. Every other substance addiction, nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, opiates, amphetamines, all of them, you can just stop using it. And with processed foods, you can stop eating processed foods, but you can't stop eating all food, which leads to the question of where's the line, what I call a bright line. Where's the bright line between the foods I eat and the foods I don't eat, or when I eat and when I don't eat? And um, it took me eight years of mucking around in various 12-step food programs to find a system that worked. And meanwhile, I was doing well academically. So I was a high school dropout when I was smoking crack. And um, we have a system. I was living in California then. I'm from San Francisco, born and raised. And we have a system in California, really through most of the United States, uh, called the junior college or the community college system, which really can serve as a on-ramp back to education. And so um, I took a high school equivalency test. I went to San Jose City College. I transferred to UC Berkeley after doing really well for a year at San Jose City College. I crushed it at UC Berkeley, got straight A's. And it's at UC Berkeley that I started studying the mind and the brain. And then I went on to get a PhD in that. And I spent 16 years as a college professor. Um teaching people about lots of things, including the psychology of eating. I, I started teaching a course on the psychology of eating. I taught positive psychology, cognitive psychology, all sorts of courses. Um, but I started teaching the neuroscience of food addiction. And when I was 28 years old, I lost all my excess weight myself. So I went from obese to slender. Um, I guess that's 19 years ago now. And I've been in my right-sized body ever since. And now I, I married the two. So the, the approach, um, to having bright lines for food, uh, n like not eating sugar, not eating flour, having clear boundaries around your meals and around your quantities, um, to handle both the substance addiction and the process addiction for food. I teach people how to do that now in a program called bright line eating. So, um, that's kind of the story of how it all came about. Yeah, it's incredible how it's come so full circle and it's now the work that you invest yourself into. And before we move forward into discussing bright line eating and the differences between those two addictions, I'm very curious about this moment of enlightenment that led you to stop taking drugs. Obviously, you mentioned that you met a guy and he took you to the 12-step program, but you mentioned that also you just had a few moments of clarity. What did they look like? Were they kind of 
divine intervention or what did it really look like in terms of those real moments of clarity for you? Yeah, great question. I think of it now as divine intervention. I didn't have a higher power in my life then that I was consciously aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, But the moment, it was one moment and uh, I remember it very clearly. I was I was in a crack house where I used to smoke. So this was a a hotel in San Francisco called the Mission Hotel on Mission in South Venice. A very very seedy hotel where you could pay for a room by the hour or the day or the week or the month. And it was a nasty nasty place. And I was in this room with this guy named Joe Brown. He would I I always had money because I was making a lot of money as a prostitute and as a call girl. So I would show up there whenever I wanted to. Basically, I always had crack rocks on me. So um, Joe Brown had the room and there was this other couple. I don't remember who they were, but they were kicking heroin. They were like shaking on the floor. They were kind of flopping around like fish outside of a boat or something. Uh, And so they were off to the side. It was a Tuesday morning. And it was about 9 or 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, August 9th, 1994. I had a shaved head and I had a blonde wig on my head. Um, I was all sucked up skinny from smoking crack all the time. And we'd been smoking crack for days, days and days. I mean, night into day into night into day into night into day, all weekend long. And now it was Tuesday morning and we were still there. And I don't know if anyone listening to this can relate who's ever been on like a four or five day nonstop drug binge where you don't eat anything, you don't drink anything, you're just doing stimulant drugs. It's it's pretty intense. And so I was pretty um, wrung out, right? Like I, my skin felt like raw hamburger meat, right? I was just sitting there. And, and what happened was um, I just got graced with clarity. Like the, like the, the moment opened up and revealed itself to me. And suddenly I was conscious of being there. I hadn't been conscious before. I'd been in a numb dreamlike state, right? But suddenly I was aware, like, this is you. Here you are doing this. This is what your life has become. And as I sat there aware, suddenly I reflected on who I thought I would be when I was a kid. I was a very good student as a young, young girl. I thought I was going to Harvard, you know, um, and that came up for me, you know, what I thought my life w- would look like when I was 20 years old. And I hadn't been in school in years. I dropped out of high school, you know, years prior. And, and then what happened was, the knowing descended very, very clearly. And I don't think this was a voice that said this, but it was suddenly the universe made it known to me. Mm -hmm. If you don't get up and get out of here right now, this is all you're ever going to be. And I got... uh, a vision, a prem, it wasn't a vision. It was a premonition or just a knowing that my future, if I sat there for one minute longer, would be an endless cycle of trying to clean up, relapsing, trying to get my life together, relapsing back into drugs, more prostitution, relapsing into drugs, like an endless, endless desperate cycle of that. I'd already been through a couple cycles of that. I'd already tried to clean up a couple times. And 
I just knew if I didn't get up and get out of there right then, that was going to be the rest of my life. I sat with that clarity for maybe three or four heartbeats. And then I just grabbed my jacket and I walked out the door. I didn't say anything to anyone. I just left. And then, you know, I wasn't living any place at that time. I didn't have a key to a place that I lived. So I got out into the bright Tuesday morning in San Francisco and I didn't know where to go. Uh, so I drove, I had a car that I was driving. It was my mom's car. She was out of the country studying yoga in India at that time. And so I was driving my mom's car. I got into my mom's car and I drove it over to this guy, Baltazar's house. And he was this rich guy that I would stay with sometimes. And he lived in this high rise and I had to get through security. And then I got up to Baltazar's house and he opened the door and he looked at me. I can tell by the way he looked at me that I didn't look too good. Um, <laughs> and he, he kind of gave me that look. And then he was, you know, on the phone to, you know, Tokyo and Greece or something doing deals on his fax machine. So um, he pointed me to the bedroom. He's like, oh, go, go, go in there, sleep it off. Um so I went into his bedroom and he was the consummate bachelor. He had no decor in his bedroom, which meant that as I sat in his bed, I was staring at a big blank white wall. So I'm sitting in this bed. I'm staring at this blank white wall and the wall is kind of swimming in front of me. And at that moment, I just remember being completely out of ideas of what to do next, like with my life. Like I was, I sat there and stared at that wall, I think for quite a while and I had no idea what to do. So I laid down, I slept and I woke up. Um, and, and the moment of clarity passed, like I just felt pretty good. I showered, then I felt really good. I put my pager on my hip. I was thinking I was going back to work that night. And then I just happened to have this date with this cute guy. Um, and he took me to this meeting and I listened to the speaker and I got a 24 hour chip and, and suddenly I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to not drink and use drugs anymore. And I got that 24 hour coin. Um, I didn't start going to meetings right away. I didn't know that there were meetings to go to. I didn't know anything about recovery. So what I did was I went back to Baltazar's house and I got all my money. I'd stashed all these bills in a drawer. I had money in, in, in a drawer in his house, in his apartment. And I took that cash and I went down to the San Francisco airport and I bought a plane ticket to Paris, literally, because this is now, now I have my shuck and my jive back. I'm like, well, I don't get another chip, another sobriety coin for 30 days. So I got to kill 30 days. So I didn't know I should be working a program. So what I did was I went to Paris and I, my money only lasted like five days or something like that. And then I flew home and then my mom was coming back from her time in India. I met my mom at the airport. I moved back in with my mom and that's when I enrolled in San, you know, a semester was starting. So I enrolled in San Jose City College. I got a job at a movie theater selling popcorn. I never went back to prostitution after getting clean. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got a legitimate life from there. I worked at a movie theater. I went to community college. Then I was off to UC Berkeley and it was all, you know, other than my food started to tackle me and, and strangle me. But, um, but academically I started to do really well from there and I started working the 12 steps. Anyway, that was the moment of clarity. That was the turning point. As such an insane story and a pretty incredible one to say the least as well. And amazing how you were able to 
listen to that call and then obviously the fortunate set of circumstances being able to go to that friend's place and then being able to go on that date who then took you to a 12 step i'm not sure about that idea of a first date but it seems to be very effective who does that i mean right elliot can we just just pause for a moment and say what on earth you don't take i mean thank god right so this guy was four years sober but he was a sex addict so he picked me up at this gas station because he was deep in his sex addiction and he knew i was a call girl because he had been a driver for a call girl before so he saw my outfit he saw the pager on my hip it's 1994 like young you know 19 year old girls don't walk around with i guess i was just 20 right with a pager on their hip at three in the morning anyway so he he got my number and that night, this AA meeting was an institution. It was called Tuesday Downtown. And at the time, it was located in the basement of Grace Cathedral, which is one of the most gorgeous, massive stained glass cathedrals in the Western Hemisphere. It's incredible. And the meeting was in the basement of this cathedral. And there were literally two or 300 people there. And it was just the place to be. And he was just self-centered enough, just self-absorbed enough that Tuesday downtown was where he went on Tuesday nights. Like he liked to be with his friends. And so he just took me and he asked me, do you want to go to a meeting? I didn't know what he meant though. I mean, to me, a meeting was like where business people do business or something. So I thought I might wait in the car and then we would go out and party. That's what I thought was happening. Anyway, yeah, that was totally bizarre, but it saved my life. It literally saved my life. It's insane. And you can't put these things down as coincidences. I feel like it's too much to almost call a coincidence. And it is amazing that you got those calls and you're able to listen to those and the circumstances fell the way that they did. But what comes to my mind as well in looking at the woman that you've become and all the work that you've done is how many people we lose to the cycle of being addicted to drugs or alcohol or being in those lifestyles and to see the potential you've been able to fulfill, you know, having that look back at who you wanted to be as a child and who you've now become. Do you ever stop and think about all the people that we potentially lose, all the people who could do great things in this world who are stuck in the cycle of addiction? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I put down drugs and alcohol so young and I've never been back to them. And so if I'm honest, where I think about that more is with food addiction. Mm -hmm. So I really reflect a lot about the untapped human potential that's trapped underneath the weight that people are carrying and the efforts that they're making to try to lose that weight and to get their health back and their food on track. Um, there's this there's this market research report that comes out every other year in odd years. It's called the U.S. Weight Loss and Diet Control Market. And even though people aren't saying that they're dieting anymore because, you know, everyone knows that diets don't work and all that stuff, um, the same number of people are still spending money trying to lose weight, right? And it's about half of the adult U.S. population in any given year are actively spending money trying to lose weight. And on average, Elliot, they are trying four or five new attempts each year. And so when I remember, you know, I have a very strong self-actualization drive. If we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? What, what a person can be, they must be. And that drive to be, you know, uh, you know, to be the best version of ourselves. Every time I would have that, 
that impulse come up, the first thing, the first order of business was, well, I got to lose this weight. I got to get, I got to get my food straight. I got to lose this weight. And when I think about the person who's going to solve cold fusion, right? We, we, we recently had a breakthrough in fusion, right? But it's still nowhere near solving our energy needs. But, but the person who's going to really solve cold fusion, I think they're probably not even working on those equations because they're trying you know, paleo for the third time this year. They're trying, yeah, they're trying to point. go keto again and measure their keto. Like they're, you know, people are just stuck in these cycles of trying to manage their food. And so much of our life force is consumed by this. I used to teach the psychology of eating and body image, a college course, right? And at some point during that course, I would draw a big circle on the board, big circle. And I would say, this is a pie chart. And I want you to think about what fraction of this is taken up by your food and your weight and your exercise and your, your attempts to control what you eat. And I want you to imagine this pie chart represents all of your thoughts, your actions, your life force, your, what you do, what you think, what you say, what you focus on, all of it, right? All of your efforts, all of your energy, all of your actions. It's all this pie chart. And what percentage of it is taken up by what you've eaten or not eaten, you know, whether what plan you're going to start, what plan you're on, how well you're sticking to it, how many miles, how many calories, how many pounds, whether you're on your plan or off your plan, how much of that pie chart. And I would have students start to cry when I asked them that question. And they were often in a right-sized body, like like normal weight, right? But but then I'd go over and I'd talk to them, you know, 21-year-old girls and um, I would say, I see you're emotional. You know, do you want to share what you're thinking? And they would say, 95%. Wow. So that's kind of where I, I really, my heart vibes with, we're losing people. You know, we're losing their contributions to society. We're losing their soul. We're losing their their self-esteem. We're losing their mojo, right? Because of the food issue. Let me just, because you wanted to go so deep into that moment of clarity, I've had one other such turning point in my life. At some point, we should tell that story too. Yeah, please share. Go ahead. I'm happy to hear it. Well, it's maybe apropos because it fast forwards. It's basically the, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's the next chapter of the story. Now, fast forward, I'm almost 40. I'm about to turn 40 years old. And so at this point, I'm a tenured psychology professor. I'm the assistant chair of the psychology department. At this point, I've been happily married for, gosh, how long? 15 years. Congratulations. Uh, this is back then. Now, now I've been happily married for 23 years. Even bigger congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Are you married, Elliot? I'm not, but I'm planning to get engaged to my girlfriend this year. So it's on the cards. Ooh, ooh. Did, does she know that you're planning to she do knows, she Okay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, oh, we're good. <laughs> okay. That's exciting. That's exciting. Um, yeah. So at this point, we have three daughters, ages five, five, and two. We have twins and then a little one. And I'm spending about 20 to 30 hours a week on a volunteer basis, helping people lose their weight in a 12 step program for food addiction. So, um, here's what my day looks like. I wake up at 5 a.m. and I meditate for half an hour. 
Uh, and then I start taking phone calls from the people that I'm working with for fun and for free in this 12 step program in 15 minute increments, taking their food commitment, what they're going to eat for that day, talking through their life and how it's going to go and, and so forth. Um, I'm showering and I'm getting my kids up. My husband and I are getting our kids ready so we can take them to daycare. Um, I leave the house. I go teach four or five college classes, do research, uh, manage the psychology department, come home. I'm, I'm going to 12 step meetings. I'm secretary, treasurer, all of these volunteer positions, get the kids to bed, you know, cook dinner, clean up from dinner, get the kids to bed and so forth. That's my try to get to bed as early as I can. That's my life, right? So it's January 26th, 2014. So this is, you know, almost not like, what is that? Uh, nine years ago. It's nine years ago. And I'm in my morning meditation. And this time it was a voice. And the voice was booming. I'm meditating. And I hear, write a book called Bright Line Eating. And suddenly I can see this book being released into the world and people coming to understand why they haven't been able to lose their weight. Like, like smart people, capable people, people with families and careers and capacity and, you know, badassery. And they've been able to do everything. They can run a marathon. They can, you know, develop friends and maintain marriages and, you know, excel in careers and get degrees, but they can't lose their weight. And suddenly they understand what's going on in their brain. And I could, I could feel in this meditation, I started to undulate like pulse with the prayers of people who, I don't know, Elliot, if it was right at that same moment or if it was across time and space, but people praying, God, please help me with my eating, help me with my weight. There's got to be a solution to this. I can't go on like this. I can't live like this anymore. Help me solve this for me. God, help me. And I started to feel their prayers and their desperation. Like I used to be curled up in the fetal position on the floor, writing letters to God, help me with this weight and this food. I I just don't know what to do anymore. And then I could see myself on the Today Show talking about this book. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I was on the Today Show. Um. And this book was helping people. It was really helping to explain how their brain works and what to do, exactly what to do to solve this problem. So I got out of that meditation. It was so impactful that that later that day, I drove to Barnes and Noble, the bookstore, and I bought a book called How to Write a Book Proposal. And I took that book home. And then I was faced with a dilemma because I didn't have any time. So the next morning, I set my alarm for 4.25 a.m. And from 4.30 to 5, before I started meditating, I started writing my book proposal. And I started going through that book, How to Write a Book Proposal. And I started on my laptop writing. And I did that faithfully seven days a week for months and months and months. And then... I got to chapter 13 or 14 in that book and my heart sank because that chapter was called Your Platform. And it said, let's get real. 
publishing houses are not going to accept your book proposal if you don't already have a platform. They're not interested in marketing your book for you if you're a first-time author. You have to have a following in advance. So this is the part of the proposal where you talk about your platform. And now I'm Googling, what is a platform? And I didn't even know. And they're like, okay, speaker circuit, email list, social media following. I'm like, okay, so now when am I going to have time to build that? And so through Googling what is a platform, I fell into Jeff Walker's um, book launch funnel. He was releasing his book around that time called Launch, which became a number one New York Times bestselling book. I bought that book and I used its steps to start an email list. And I started sending out emails once a week to this email list on the psychology and neuroscience of truly sustainable weight loss. The email list within a year was over a hundred thousand people. And I had an online course. Um, now it's been nine years. What like, o- like over 2 million people have joined that email list. And within a couple of years, I had like 30 employees helping me to serve all the people. The book did get published. It hit the New York times bestsellers list. I was on the Today Show talking about it, um, and all of that came true. And so that was the other turning point in my life. And within a year, I was resigning as a professor. I couldn't do both careers anymore, and Brightline Eating needed me more. So I I switched careers, and now I'm the founder of Brightline Eating. So that was the other turning point in my life. They're super significant and clear signs, huh? I can't believe that you got the name and everything. I want to maybe do some of the meditation that you're doing. <laughs> You know, it's it's not fancy. It's the simplest thing. Uh, I sit for half an hour and I set a timer and I just don't do anything for half an hour. That's really it. That's it. And I think that it sounds super simple, but when we actually look at our lives and when we, especially the situation you were in, in terms of you getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning, doing some work in the morning, then getting kids ready for school and everything along those lines, is that your mind doesn't really have any chance to just sit and be. And you don't have any chance to sit and listen. So I think even though it's the most simplest form of meditation, I can understand how impactful it can be just to and have the opportunity to listen. And obviously, when you give yourself the opportunity to listen, you start to hear the clear messages that are actually always there. So it's amazing that you had the opportunity to do that. So that's you've re-inspired me to get back into my meditation, that's for sure. Beautiful. Well, that's a win. I love it. <laughs> And now I want to fast forward onto bright line eating. And I want to discuss a little bit more about that approach. And I don't know if this is fair in saying, and it's probably a completely different set of circumstances, but it almost sounds like the food addiction side of things was a little bit harder to overcome than the drug addiction side of things. Am I fair? Is it fair in saying that? Super fair, Elliot. As a matter of fact, I make that point really loud and clear. In my third book, which is called Resume, uh, there's a whole chapter called Food is the Hardest. And I outline the reasons why food addiction is the hardest addiction to kick. Food doesn't hit the brain the hardest. It's, it's on par with alcohol and nicotine in terms mm-hmm. of the strength of the substance addiction in terms of the dopamine response and so forth. For anyone out there who's um, confused about whether food addiction is real, just ask any neuroscientist who studies addiction in the brain and they'll just point to a brain scan. I mean, it's very, very clear that dopamine downregulation in the nucleus accumbens looks identical in someone who's obese and addicted to food versus someone who is addicted to cocaine, heroin. It looks identical in the brain. And I shouldn't have said obese, actually, because the person doesn't have to be obese. They could be slender and addicted to food just as well. Um, but 
Um, food is the hardest, not because it's a stronger response in the brain, but because it's all around you. You can't escape it. Um, and it's socially pushed. The cues to consume it are nonstop. Um, you can't completely abstain, which means you're always trying to deal with what and when and how much. And that's what bright line eating helps with a lot. But even still, let's imagine you're eating three meals a day. That means you're kicking the tiger. And, you know, I mean, imagine if you were addicted to alcohol and you had to drink a beer in the morning and a shot of vodka at lunch and, you know, a glass of red wine at dinner and never drink other than that. It would be a much harder job, right? And also, Weight gain is problematic. So when when you're addicted to food, usually but not always, you've put on weight. And mm-hmm. then when you try to lose that weight, the brain really resists losing weight and it actually sends you back into the food addiction when you try to lose weight. So it's as if you're addicted to alcohol. The more alcohol you drink, it causes lethal, deadly acne. And then when you get sober – you still have the acne. So now you try to address the acne, but the only treatment for acne comes with an overpowering desire to drink alcohol and treating the acne sends you back to alcoholism. That's kind of the loop that you're stuck in with food addiction. And, you know, and no other drugs have, you know, as large an industry, the food industry, right? Um, uh-huh. Trying to rehook you. So food addiction is the hardest for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And I was just thinking about like advertising campaigns, for example, is that you're never going to see, well, let's hope so, never going to see an, like a huge marketing and advertising campaign for any drugs, any illegal drugs. You may see it for alcohol, but not nearly at the level that we see it for fast food or any different types of food. It doesn't even matter if it's fast food or not, but they're billion dollar industries. So it's one of those things that's in your face at all times as well. So the big million dollar question to you, Susan, is how do we start to break free from our food addiction? Yeah, well, um, bright lines really help the clearer you can be about it. So a bright line is a clear, unambiguous boundary that you just don't cross. And um, we're right now facing a society that's very confused and uh, misguided about how to get your food back on track. We are hearing messages of moderation and there are no bad foods and, you know, just listen to your body. And the reality is that people's brains and bodies work very differently when it comes to food. Those messages work for some people. And it's the privileged set of subset of society for whom, you know, uh, signals of hunger and, and fullness come very clearly. They naturally desire to stop eating when they've had enough food. You know, they can just listen to their bodies. For some of us, those signals are really not working and they're not likely to be restored. And what's challenging is you really need to have a plan of uh, structure around your eating. So we should not be eating all food. Not everyone should be eating all foods in moderation. So something like a third of the population has enough food addiction on board that they would experience more freedom and more success by actually never eating sugar, for example, than trying to engage with sugar in moderation. So the bright lines that I help people establish are sugar, flour, and meals and quantities. And so there's enough structure around eating that, that you know with every bite of food, whether it's, it's like on your plan or off your plan, really, really clear lines. And then what happens is, you get automaticity with your eating, kind of like brushing your teeth, where breakfast, lunch, and dinner end up being consumed 
just like brushing your teeth gets done morning and night. Uh, really not using the willpower part of the brain because willpower, unfortunately, doesn't show up for us reliably. It's not that we don't know what to eat. It's that, you know, our willpower craps out uh, at certain times after we're mentally exhausted or we've been sitting in traffic or we've been checking email or whatever. And suddenly we find ourselves eating something that maybe isn't the best or maybe isn't the time that we wanted to be eating uh, so we need to build in a lot more automaticity. Now I teach people how to do that step by step in my program. Um, but, uh, that's the essence of it. People need a lot more structure than they think they do. So I work as a online health and fitness coach. And the biggest challenge I find for most people is the staying on track side of things. It's sticking to the structure that they've created, even when they may have even been the one who have chosen it. How do you get people to maintain their commitment to the plan especially when there seems to be and i don't like to use this word but it kind of is fair to say many restrictions in a way you know if they can't eat sugar if they can't eat flour obviously they're probably allowed to eat fruit and stuff like that but in terms of refined sugars and everything along those lines how do you get people to be adherent to the plan when it does have a pretty decent level of restriction revolves around it yeah totally great question and a couple things. First of all, the plan itself has to be the right plan. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, a plan of meals and snacks, let's say a plan that involves eating four, five, six times a day, isn't going to be as effective or easy, easy to stick to as a plan that involves eating three times a day or two times a day. Um, imagine, Elliot, how successful you would be just at follow through and adherence if your dentist said, Elliot, you've been doing so great brushing and flossing morning and night, uh, but now I need you to do it five times a day. Yeah, that'd be tough. Right? You would fail at the follow through on that because you wouldn't have your supplies. You'd forget, you'd, right? And so, not every plan is is created equal. Just because it's a clear plan doesn't mean you're going to actually be able to do it in the flow of real life, right? And so I don't recommend eating any more often than breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner are times of day where there's a pause, there's some clarity. You could build in some automaticity in terms of time-based and location-based cues that it's time to eat. But in between times, don't be eating, like literally have a nothing goes in my mouth in between meals policy. So that's the first thing. Second thing is you got to really be cognizant of the substance addiction. So um, if people have anything on their plan that's re-triggering their addiction, it's like asking them to not continue to smoke cigarettes when they've, uh, you know, been sneaking puffs of cigarettes here and there. It's like that's going to lead to a slippery slope. So you got to look at their plan. Mm -hmm. And so, so you might think it's quite restrictive. It might not be restrictive enough. In other words, if they're, you know, including foods that have some sugar and flour in them, they're going to continue to be triggered and their brains aren't going to heal. So, um, making sure that there's nothing addictive in their plan is going to be essential. So that's another thing. And then finally, they're going to need enough identity and community support around it. This isn't the kind of thing that people succeed at on their own in the wild. And the reason is that humans are herd animals and doing something this radically different with your food makes you feel weird in your society of friends and family and co coworkers and colleagues, right? And so you've got to band up with a group of people who are doing it like you do it to normalize it. And that identity has to get really strong. So in Brightline Eating, we, 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 
I think of ourselves as bright lifers and we do bright line eating. We don't eat sugar and flour. You'll never hear one of us say, Oh no, I can't have that cookie because I can't eat sugar right now. Like as if they're on a diet, right? No, it's like, no, thank you. I don't eat sugar. And you can hear the identity in that phrasing don't versus can't, right? So that would be another thing. Maybe the people you're working with are trying to just kind of do it in isolation. It tends not to work very well that way. And what we find in our program is the plan is very, very clear. And it's a very well-structured plan. When people leave the membership, like they don't renew the membership, intending to stick with the food plan, they do fine for about six months. And then six months later, uh, what happens is their weight gain starts to creep up and they're back, you know, eventually they're back. Uh, you know, typically they don't regain all their weight, but they regain a lot of it if they drift away from the membership. Whereas people who stay actively engaged with the membership tend to maintain their weight loss. So it really is a matter of belonging and connection. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting set of circumstances because of what I wouldn't want someone to need is the need to be subscribed to a membership consistently to be able to maintain the results that they've achieved. Ultimately, I feel that sustainability and kind of food freedom is a place where it's not really something you have to think about or rely on a certain structure to get, obviously relying on a structure in terms of your habits and your routines and everything like that. But for me and the coaching that I do, for example, like my goal is to allow the client to, you know, go on their own way and spread their wings and to hopefully provide them with enough education that they're able to do that on a long-term basis. Do you subscribe to the same uh, thought belief as well? I would love that, Elliot. I, I mean, this is where it's kind of like intuitive eating, right? It sounds so good on the surface. Uh I just don't see it work with people who have brains like the people I work with. So uh, we need to remember that people are really different. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the food addiction susceptibility scale. It goes from one to 10. I'm a 10. I don't know what you are, Elliot. You might be a two, right? So it's really important to understand not every brain is susceptible to addiction at all. And I mean heroin, like you can shoot them up with heroin every day and they won't get addicted to it. And you might say, well, that's impossible. Like heroin is addictive. Like, of course, they're going to get addicted to it. No, they won't. As soon as you stop giving them those injections, they're happy to wean off at the first uh, immediately. They might experience some some withdrawal symptoms because they got phys- physiologically addicted, but their brains weren't addicted. They don't want it anymore. And you can see that when you send people home with opiate prescriptions after back surgery and they take those pills every four to six hours for months and months. And then the minute it's time to wean off, they're happy to do it, right? Some percentage of people go on to become pill heads at that point. They're addicted. So you got to understand that um, when you have a brain that's highly, highly susceptible to addiction and food addiction has wired up. So you have now have you have pathways in the brain that are wired to uh, lead to cravings and obsession based on certain cues. And you're dealing with food, which you have to keep eating. And you're in a society where people are pushing it on you all the time and don't believe that food addiction is real and, and chide you and tease you for being too rigid and all that stuff. You've got to understand exceptions creep in. One exception begets the next. And over a period, life is stressful. 
And over a period of time, a lot of backsliding happens, right? This isn't heroin. This isn't something people can just walk away from and then live in a world where they're not going to be re-addicted or re-triggered. They're dealing with it every single day. And so while I love the notion that someone can just be empowered to be on their own forever and ever, that's not what I see in the real world. We have a food environment right now when it comes to food addiction that is plotting your relapse and conspiring to to create that every minute of every day. And I don't I mean I'm 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 a total optimist, right? I am a positive person. I don't mean to point paint a picture of gloom and doom, but it's just the food reality that we live in. You got to agree, like look around, right? It's like if food is your is your drug of choice, you know, this is a hard world to live in. So, no, I don't subscribe to the notion that that on average people are going to be successful. And this is let me just end by this this point here by saying this. In positive psychology, the psychology of happiness and wellness and flourishing, we don't subscribe to the unconstrained model of the human being. We subscribe to the constrained model of the human being, that we must understand where our limits are as a human being. No, we can't exercise all day, every day with no rest. Yes, we need to build in sleep. And when it comes to this particular issue, there are constraints and supports that are going to need to stay in place to to expect a continuity of optimal functioning, right? Like no matter how much you practice, you're never going to learn how to draw a really straight line freehand. Have the ruler. It helps. Yeah, I completely agree with many of the thoughts. And I think it just comes down to the individual and what their beliefs are and where they fall on the scale of addiction, I guess, as well. Because if I don't want to have people leaving today's podcast with a lack of optimism, but I also want them to have reality set in as well. I want them to understand that, yeah, it's gonna, it could be a slippery slope backwards, but I also don't want them to think that they have to be subscribed to something forever in order to maintain the results they've got. But I think it just depends on the person because of, you know, I think about the long-term nature of someone who's a recovering addict, for example, and you see many people who completely avoid a certain substance in the future. And then there's others who are able to, start to reintegrate it and it's all comes down to the individual and whether they want to do that but what about those people who are maybe able to overcome you know let's say an alcohol addiction for example and now they've been able to come full circle and able to have a drink here and there but be able to take it and leave it whereas before it was the kind of the clutch of their life yeah i've seen that so a girl that was um in my life back when i was um actually she turned me on to the call girl agency that i worked for she was a drug and alcohol addict like i was alcohol was really really her thing and um she does drink occasionally now um sometimes she drinks too much but mostly she's fine she has a very um successful life and i know what you're talking about right i i have personally never gone back to drugs or alcohol and i don't want to. I I do imagine that maybe I could have a glass of red wine. I don't know, but I don't, you know, I don't I don't want to experience what that branch of my future life might look like. Like there's possibilities there that I don't want to explore. Um and so I agree with you when it's, you know, it depends on what people's beliefs are, what their goals are, what their desires are. 
Um, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. So you have to accept the risk, right, of going back and yeah, trying it. I've done that myself with food. Like I, after many, many, many years in my right-sized body, weighing and measuring my food, really uh, immaculate with it, no psychological issues to speak of, like really doing great. I tried to go back to some managed sugar and flour. And within a month or two, it was clear that it was really getting out of control sometimes. And my weight started to creep up. Then I started asking myself, how many new wardrobes of clothes am I willing to buy in service of this experiment? It started to get dicey. And I just decided I'm happier. I'm happier when I just stick within my bright lines, you know? So yeah, I do think that understanding the food addiction susceptibility scale, like take the quiz, you know, um, foodaddictionquiz.com. Take the quiz and find out where you are on a scale from one to 10. Because if, if it's, it's very empowering to know if you're a nine or a 10 on that scale that measures how intensely your brain is going to feel the pull of those addictive foods, how much powerlessness you're going to feel, how much, how out of control you're, you sometimes feel when you start to eat. Uh, in terms of the quantities you eat, how much, how bad your cravings are, how bad your binging has been. You know, if you're a nine or a 10 on that scale, it's a very different thing than if you're a five and people are really different. And I don't think we understand enough about the implications of that difference, that the susceptibility to addiction is a very real thing and not everyone is equal on that. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think people can maybe rank on the scale of like nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 and then some years later be quite, yeah, quite a significant amount lower on the scale and be around that three, four out of 10? Yeah, that's a great question, Elliot. So um, the quiz actually is phrased to reinforce the notion of once you're this is this is just a neurobiological reality. So this is where my PhD comes in. There there are multiple lines of evidence and it's it's really really well established now. Once fiber tracks are laid in your brain, once the wiring has wired up, it doesn't ever completely go away. Um what happens is you train your brain to not allow neural energy to flow down those pathways anymore, but they remain behind. So the best uh, analogy is like a dry riverbed. If you've, if you've had water flowing over dry land long enough that it grooves a riverbed and it's been years and years, so now it's a pretty deep riverbed. And then you stop letting the water flow in that direction and you redirect it somewhere else and you groove other riverbeds in other directions um, you still have a dry crevasse there, a riverbed, like a, like a, you know, and so if you start letting water down it, usually it doesn't take too long before it's a rushing river again, right? And so this is where, from a neuroscientific perspective, it is true. That's the foundation of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Are there people who've had alcohol problems who managed to drink normally afterwards. Yes. And they're more rare. And, um, oftentimes they, they will kind of stumble and get blitzed drunk again, you know, because the cues sort of lead them in that direction. So here's what I would say. Um, absolutely with the right support and training, someone who's a, a nine or a 10 on the scale 
can experience life as a two or a three. That's the story of me right now. Right now, today, I experience my eating as a one or a two on the susceptibility scale. I have no cravings. I have no binges. I have no food obsession. Um, I don't find it hard to stop eating when it's time to stop eating. Now, I weigh and measure my food. And if I stop using a digital food scale, the quantities become an issue again pretty quickly. But as long as I use my digital food scale, I I have no quantity issue. I just eat eat until the meal's over. But I've experienced trying to go back to to unmeasured eating, and it escalates pretty quickly for me, right? And so, um, here's what I would say: if you've ever been high on the scale, you're always going to have to be more vigilant than someone who never was. That's what I'll say. Yeah. All of that makes a lot of sense and it's good to get that context as well. And the next set of people I want to talk about before we do wrap up today is the next generation. You mentioned you've got three children. What approach are you taking with them when it comes to their food and their exposure to certain things like alcohol? I don't know if you're in, I'm, well, I'm sure that you're going to be very open-minded when it comes to the certain drugs that they might want to try in the future. Maybe that's not a conversation you want to touch now, or maybe it is. I'm sure that they've heard your story and everything along those lines, but what's your approach when it comes to, let's say, those different substances that they will have access to in the younger years of their life? Yeah, well, they they do know my story for sure. Um, one thing I'll be sure to do is to educate them that not all drugs are created equal. Mushrooms does not equal crack cocaine. Um, so we need to be careful about the word drugs. And uh, in terms of their eating, uh, you know, bright line eating is for people who need it and want it. It's not for kids. And so what I have done with my kids is I provide food at regular meal times. Um, they eat, they eat sugar and they eat plenty of flour, but, um, I don't serve a lot of junk food in my house. I serve foods that I feel good about serving. They get a lot of junk food out of the house. Like every kid does in this day and age. It's really a, a feeding kids in this day and age is really a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. Elliot, you're, you're, you're in for it. If you have kids, like feeding, raising good eaters is really hard in this day and age. Um, but one of the things I find helps is something called the division of responsibility, which Ellen Satter, uh, came up with this. And the idea is the parents are responsible for providing the meals when they happen, what's being served. Uh, and then the kids are responsible for whether and how much they eat off of what's being served. And so I followed that division of responsibility very, very strictly when they were kids. And so they get to just, so that meant that I, you know, if I'm providing this well-balanced, well-rounded meal and all they want to eat is the rice and the butter and more and more and more rice and butter, that's fine. That's their choice. They get to choose what and how much they eat and whether they they eat from what's provided. Um, and uh, yeah, and in terms of, drugs and alcohol, we'll see. We haven't, my, my twins are 14 and a half now and, um, they've had some challenges, but not yet drug and alcohol challenges. And, um, yeah, we'll see. I'm glad I'm married, uh, so that my husband and I can figure it out together. Yeah, I'll have to get you back on for round two in a few years time to see how that's going. And if there's anyone who can shape the course of that in an effective way, I have no doubt it's you and your husband, Susan. Thanks, Elliot. Thank you. Amazing. So to wrap up today, I have a couple of final questions for you. The first is, what impact would you like to have on the world with the work that you do? Oh, 
I would love for people to really understand all people everywhere. Food addiction is real, but not everyone's affected. Some people are affected. And for the people who are affected, a structured way of eating is going to be more helpful and it's going to provide freedom, not restriction and restraint, freedom. Food structure provides freedom when you have a more addictive relationship with food. And as a society, we must do a way better job protecting people who are vulnerable um, to processed foods, including kids and people who are higher on the food addiction susceptibility scale. And so uh, I don't think that those foods should be outlawed or anything like that. I just think that we should be treating them a little bit more like cigarettes and booze, right? Um, because uh, yeah, there's a lot of vulnerable, vulnerable people out there who are being sucked in way too young. Absolutely. And where's the best place that people can find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing, Susan? Yeah, brightlineeating.com. B-R-I-G-H-T-L-I-N-E, brightlineeating.com. And I put out a weekly vlog every Wednesday. I put out a new video for fun and for free so people can tap into that. And they can take the quiz at brightlineeating.com too, or foodfreedomquiz.com or foodaddictionquiz.com. Uh, any of those links will will take them to the quiz so they can find out uh, how their brains stack up on that susceptibility scale. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a truly fascinating conversation. I'll make sure all those links are in the description as well. Thank you again, Susan. Thanks, Elliot. Take care. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.